Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Today I will be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. How often is it, then, brethren, whether you come together, each of you has a, a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interception, let all things be done by edification. I read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Indeed there is. It's wonderful to see you all this evening, to be back uh, for our evening worship tonight. Some of you that are here for the first time today, glad to see you and glad that you're able by God's providence to be here. Uh, We're going to dig right into our lesson this evening, which is going to be taken from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you would like to go ahead and open your Bibles or your Bible apps to that chapter, uh, that would be a blessing. When you come together, this is the series uh, that we have been exploring for the past couple of weeks as we think about worship. And uh, this phrase comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 14 specifically. And those are bookends of a context in the book of 1 Corinthians that talks about worship. And I promised you this morning in the lesson uh, that we would look in a little more detail at the chiastic structure uh, of 1 Corinthians 14. Now, you don't necessarily need to know that 1 Corinthians 14 is organized in this way. Uh, but as we've talked about before, the chiastic structure comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our X, uh, which, of course, tilt that on the side. It's a cross. And, and this organizational pattern is, pattern is Hebrew, and it is ancient, and it is at, the Bible is actually riddled through with chiastic structures. This was the favorite way for Hebrew writers to organize their thoughts, especially in poetry, but in other kinds of literature as well. We noticed previously that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the books of law, they are organized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chiastically. And in fact, the whole Bible has a chiastic structure centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. The whole message of Scripture is bring everybody to Jerusalem to see what God is doing and learn about God until the cross. And from the cross, the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to fill the earth. And so we are in this spreading phase of the plan of God. And worship is something that is a very central part of that. And so we don't have time this evening to go through the whole of 1 Corinthians 14. But you can see a few passages there that I have highlighted with the deep orange. We're going to focus on those for a few minutes tonight. And so first of all, let's look at verses 26 through 33 of 1 Corinthians 14. 26 through 33. Now I'm going to read this back and forth in the New King James Version as well as in the ESV because there are some issues here that will make it easier for us to understand. 1 Corinthians 14 beginning in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, question, the New King James says, In the ESV, what then, brothers? 
How is it then is a little bit of a clunky translation in the New King James. All right? The ESV says, what then, brothers? The idea of this passage is the Apostle Paul has given a great deal of teaching from chapter 11, 12, 13, and now the first 25 verses of chapter 14 about rules from God, direction from God about how we are to behave ourselves and order ourselves when we come together into our worship assemblies. And so Paul says, what then, brothers? All this having been said, he's now going to begin to really point to the specific basics uh, of, of what we're talking about together. So continuing then, how then, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, uh, has a hymn in the ESV. Each of you has a teaching, the New King James. The word in the ESV is lesson. And then uh, has a revelation, uh, has a tongue rather. The New King James says, the ESV switches the order of these two. Has a tongue, has a revelation in the New King James. Has a revelation, has a tongue in the ESV. Doesn't matter the word order there. Both the content is there in both versions. Let all things be done for edification. That word in the New King James for building up. When you find that word edification, if you're using a Bible version that uses that word, just think of what an edifice is. Even that word is not one that we commonly use. Ah, look at that beautiful edifice over there. It's just not the way that we talk, typically speaking, but it's just the word for a building. So edification is, just think of edifice, a building. Edification is building somebody up. All right, And so when you've got a brother or sister in Christ and you share with them some pertinent biblical knowledge, that's helping them to grow in knowledge. You're building them up. If you've got a brother or sister that needs encouragement and you share a word of encouragement with that brother or sister, you fill them with, with great, a greater sense of emotional ability, with courage to face whatever challenges they're dealing with. You made them a stronger Christian, at least for a period of time. So you've built them up. And if you've got a brother or sister that needs to be corrected, I want you to make sure, brothers and sisters, that, that you do not think about correction the way that the world thinks about correction. The world says, don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't you judge me. Don't you come into my world with any kind of criticism. Now listen, make sure that when you do have a correction to share with a brother or sister in Christ, you go out of your way, bend over backwards, so to speak, to make sure that you make it clear that you love them, that you're not trying to say that you're better than them because of how sensitive we are in this culture today. But when someone needs to be corrected, if I need to be corrected, brothers and sisters, and you come to me lovingly and correct me, that is not tearing me down. That is building me up because I need to understand the truth and I need to obey it and I need to teach it. If you help me to do that, you're doing a good thing for me, not an evil thing. So continuing on then with the passage. If anyone speaks in a tongue, verse 27, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. And we talked about what speaking in tongues actually was compared to what some people think this morning. If you have questions about that, get online and listen to this morning's sermon. Let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And the ESV correctly stops the paragraph there. 
All right, let's think about this particular section. First of all, that phrase. I told you we didn't have time to get into this this morning, but it fits into our context well tonight. Decency and order is one of the most abused statements in the whole Bible. I know whole churches that have been held captive by one cranky member because they decide that some perfectly scriptural way of doing things in church doesn't fit with their desires, and so they will challenge that practice by saying, well, that's not decent and orderly. And boy, that has been done, I mean, so much in the church. And brothers and sisters, if you will just read that statement in this context, it is not a fill-in-the-blank for whatever practice you don't like. Now, if there's some practice that is being brought into the assembling, assembling of ourselves together that violates your conscience, then you need to pursue that in the right way. Because if you're worshiping in a way that violates your conscience, that's not okay. Even if the practice is not itself unscriptural, you've got to have a clean conscience. Read Romans chapter 14 and you'll see that's so. You may need to sit down with the leaders of the church, talk to the preacher, talk to the elders, and discuss, hey, I've got this issue here, let's study through this. That would be a brotherly way to approach this situation. If you, you find that you are convinced that a church is bringing some uh, anti-scriptural, some ungodly practice, some unrighteous practice into the worship, then of course you're going to have to deal with that. Again, remember, the Bible gives us an order of operations to pursue if we've got a problem with a brother. And Matthew 18 kicks off that sequence by saying you go alone to the main person that you've got an issue with and you try to resolve that thing discreetly. And if you cannot, then you don't spread it through the gossip mill. You find one or two other brothers to take with you that they can be witnesses and you try to solve church problems as discreetly as possible. Sometime when you're looking for an interesting Bible study challenge, I challenge you to go through the wisdom literature, especially the book of Proverbs, and just circle or underline or take a note of every single word of wisdom there that teaches people to be discreet because there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. And so, brothers and sisters, when we, we start to, we have a problem with something, the way something is being done, the way somebody did something in a worship context, or even it brought more broadly speaking, in just the way the church is, is doing its business, somehow or another on a daily basis, and we start the gossip mill, and we start going around behind uh, people and, and get building a faction behind us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get me, you know, 10 or 12 good brothers here, uh, and I'm going to get them behind me, and we're, we're going to make sure we've got a good strong faction of people so that we can, we can can then uh, rise up and control this issue and set it down. I, I want you to read Galatians 5 and recognize there's a little section there contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit that is called the works of the flesh. And all that stuff is explained in that context. If you're trying to solve church problems in a worldly way, you're doing the work of Satan and it will not bring about God's desire or his aims or his agenda for the development of the church and its mission in this world. And so, decency and order is not a fill-in-the-blank for whatever practice you don't like. It's not an easy way to shoot somebody's idea down because we've never done it before. The question about any practice, whether it's in worship or outside, is, is this something that violates Scripture or not? That's the question. It's the only question. And if something does not violate Scripture, but you just don't like it, then I'm going to say this very, very nicely. Get over it. Just get over it. Because you're not the only member of the church. In fact, there's going to be kind of a question 
that we'll go to in a few minutes that Paul asked the folks at Corinth that runs right along that line. Let's continue then. There's some words here in this passage we read that are very important for us understanding what Paul is describing as practices that, that are to be characterized by Christian worship and Christian assemblies. First of all, we see either hymn or psalm, depending on your Bible version. It comes from the Greek word psalmos. Sounds just like psalm, right? Uh, yeah, that's right, because that's what the word is. And it can mean, of course, the 150 psalms we have in our Old Testament. Uh, but the word means a spiritual song or a hymn in a more general sense also. And so when we sing the songs in our hymnal, they are psalms. Not, now, not all of them are inspired psalms. Some of them are, in fact, the, the text of the inspired psalms that we put to music and harmony, and we sing, and that's great. And so we ought to be singing the 150 psalms, those that are consistent with New Testament Christianity. But we also can write new hymns that sing praise to God. And so uh, in the first century church, Paul says in this context, when you come together, each one, not, not literally meaning every single one, but somebody's got a hymn they want to teach the church so that the church can teach this hymn. And that was something that was happening in the ancient world. Sometimes our song leaders come in and they want to teach us a new hymn, a new song that we haven't sung before. That's consistent with what was going on in the ancient church. Teaching, lesson, the Greek word is didache, didache. And this is doctrinal teaching. It's teaching that even in the ancient church did not necessarily mean that the teacher had inspiration. So this is not necessarily a prophet giving a revelation. This is not someone necessarily that has the miraculous word of knowledge or word of wisdom imparting. This is simply somebody who has studied the Word of God, even the Old Testament Scriptures, interpreted them through the finished work of Christ, and is bringing doctrine to the church. And so part of our assemblies, brothers and sisters, needs to be characterized by doctrinal teaching. In other words, we need to have teachers and preachers that have spent time in the Word of God, have gleaned from it a message, a doctrinal message about what's right and wrong, and that needs to be taught to the church so that we can understand the will of God. That's didache, the teaching or the lesson. Then we come to the word revelation. You can look at the transliteration of the Greek apocalypsis. Sounds like apocalypse because, well, that's the word. That's what that word comes from. Now, when we use the word apocalypse today, people think of, you know, uh, the walking dead or something, zombie apocalypse, or I've heard the word being thrown around about nuclear weapons scares, about what's going on in the war over there in Ukraine today. And uh, because of people's misunderstanding of the book of Revelation, apocalypse has become synonymous with any kind of world-ending or society-ending sort of catastrophe. Well, there are kind of world-ending and, and, and society-ending catastrophic events that the book of the apocalypse, that the book of Revelation talks about, but that's not really what the book is about. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse of John, the revelation from John. But the whole Bible is an apocalypse from God, a revelation from God to mankind. And so when we find this Greek word in this passage, this is the prophet. This is the person who has miraculous ability in the ancient church who is going to get up and give a revelation, new truth, a message that God has given to be shared with the church. This was something that was happening in the ancient city of Corinth. And then, of course, we have the word glossa. To be distinguished with glossolalia, we talked about this morning. This is glossa, just the word for a language. And so folks that had the gifts of speaking in tongues, if that was relevant to that assembly, 
read the whole context and note what we talked about this morning. If speaking in that particular language was relevant to that particular assembly, you would have someone get up and they would share the message that God gave them in this foreign language. If there was someone there that spoke that language, it would speak to them directly and they would be convinced that God was certainly with these people. And so that was something that was an aspect of worship in the first century church. And finally, the word interpretation comes from the Greek word hermeneia from which we get our word hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. In other words, someone could then stand up in the church and they could take a difficult passage, break it down into its pieces, sort those pieces, box those pieces, package those pieces, explain the meaning of maybe a difficult passage to the church so that the members can put it into practice in their lives. These are the specific elements of the teaching part as well as the, the, the song service, which is also part of the teaching ministry of a local church that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I want us to notice some differences between us and them. This is part of me practicing that principle of hermeneia to where we take this passage written to the ancient church that had certain characteristics that, that were true to their times that, that do not characterize our times today. And, and so I have known of writers even in the churches of Christ that would come to 1 Corinthians 14 and say, well, since we don't have supernaturally gifted miracle workers in our assemblies today, this passage doesn't apply to us. And that is wrong. The passage does apply to us. There are elements of it that do not apply directly, but all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped unto adequate, thoroughly equipped unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That word all is there as the head of that passage, and 1 Corinthians 14 certainly falls under that heading. And therefore, this passage properly interpreted is just as applicable and authoritative to the church in the 21st century as it was to the church in the first. But there are some elements that are not going to cross over from their time to ours in a perfectly parallel way. At the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians 14, the church did not yet have the completed canon and still had true charismatic leadership. Now, when I say true charismatic leadership, I'm meaning the true meaning of that word. We talk about a charismatic leader today. We might be talking about some politician who's a great public speaker, who's got a magnetic personality. People just like the guy, and they want to follow him. They think he's got the answers to the problems in America today. And we would say that that's a charismatic leader right there. Now, we're using that in a derivative sort of sense. But the word charisma comes from the Greek word charis, which is the word for grace, the original idea of charisma was an ability that was graced to an individual by God. And so when we talk about true charismatic leadership, we're talking about leadership by people with miraculous powers that God has given them to enable them to lead, right? So the church in the first century did not have a completed canon of Scripture, and they had miracle workers as their leaders, Today, we do not have true charismatic leadership. We might have some charismatic leaders in the derivative sense, just folks that are good speakers and magnetic personalities and that kind of stuff, and that's fine. But we don't have anybody in the Lord's church today that is a miraculously empowered leader of the church. That's, that's something that went away 
with the deaths of the apostles. We don't have that. And we have something they didn't have, though. We have the completed canon of Scripture. And therefore, there are going to be some practices that took place in the first century church that don't need to be practiced today that aren't relevant. You see, part of the two or three and then two or three pattern that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 was because of the incomplete and, in, and uncertain nature of prophetic utterances. And you had to test the spirits to see whether they were from God. Isn't that what John says? And so you have a brother saying, I've received a revelation from the Lord. And he stands up then in his turn, because it was to be done decently and in order, he stands up in his turn and he shares the revelation. And what's supposed to happen is you have a couple of these prophets share a revelation and then they sit down and then you have some well-educated brothers in the Word stand up and they put those messages to the test. They challenge. They ask questions. They, they test all things so that they can hold fast to that which is good. And that's what's going on then. Today, as a preacher or teacher stands up, not with miraculous inspiration to the individual, but dealing with miraculous information that we all have in our laps at the same time, the teacher can teach, and all of the members then can test what he is saying by the Word. And that's why every one of our preachers here as well as any of our teachers that are worth their salt, will constantly ask you to test what we're saying against the Word of God. And so the actual way that this happens in the non-miraculous environment is a little bit different. But the substance of what is happening is exactly the same. And I want you to recognize that. We're not just taking liberties with this text. We're doing exactly what this text teaches us to do, but in a way that is relevant to, to the particular part of the Christian era in which we live. We still all do the essential things from this context. But since our situation is different, it's okay for it to look a bit different as long as it's all being done in the same spirit with the same goals. Now, back to that chiastic outline. I want us to look at verses 36 through 38. 36 through 38. Now, here's where Paul uh, asked some very, some very pointed questions to the church at ancient Corinth. He says, Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it has reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. It's not a great translation of the Greek there in the New King James. So looking back over at the ESV, notice the way ESV renders verse uh, 38. He says... If anyone thinks that he is, or verse 37 for context, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's what the Greek means there in verse 38. Right? So we have the central point of the text of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul asks humbling questions. And the humbling question that he asked, we could translate today in, in the year 2022, he's saying, who do you think you are? 
Do you, are you the folks that originated the Word of God? You think you're the only place where there are prophets in the church? Those are the questions that he's asking the brethren at Corinth because Corinth has got all kinds of issues. <laughs> the church at Corinth has got all kinds of problems. And the, the seedbed of those problems are the arrogance of these spiritually gifted people creating this pecking order where the tongue speakers are saying, well, there ain't no gift greater than speaking in tongues. We ought to have 90% of the time of the worship service. And, and, and the prophets, more correct, based upon the text, are saying, oh, no, 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 prophecy is the highest gift. We should have 90% of the time in the worship service. Folks that are coming in that love the song service are saying, that really, the best part of worship is singing. So we should spend 90% of our time singing. <laughs> Ever been in a church where that sounds familiar? <laughs> I have. <laughs> Boy, I've heard that over the years. In our own modern version of that, well, I just, I mean, preaching, I mean, nobody can sit through a sermon that's longer than 20 minutes. Don't amen that. Man, <laughs> I've heard that over the years, and obviously I've never prescribed to that particular idea. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Okay? But, but then there are folks that say, well, I just love to sing. I wish we'd just sing more and, and preach less. Or, you know, and, and then folks that, well, the, the communion, that's really the centerpiece of our worship. And it is the reason why we especially come together on Sunday. But it's not the only thing we're called to do. And, it, and in fact, uh, the beginning of the worship context in 1 Corinthians 11 begins talking about communion. So it's a very important part of what we do. But it's not the only thing. And that's what Paul is doing. He's trying to help us all to be decent. And at the core of being decent is being humble. Humble. And recognizing I'm not the only soul here that matters. And my giftedness is not the most important thing in the church. What matters more than anything is that the central aims of the kingdom of God are being pursued here. That's what matters. And if we organize our worship in a way that highlights the aims of the kingdom of God, then we're doing the things that God wants us to do. And that means everybody's got to know their place. And everybody's got to try to fulfill it in, in a faithful and humble way. Secondly, by asking those pointed questions, the Apostle Paul is saying there is an objective standard of authority that you folks at Corinth are subject to just like the brethren everywhere else are. The same rules that regulate Christian worship at Laverne Church of Christ, regulated at Sand Hill Church of Christ, and regulated at Highland Heights Church of Christ, and Burnish Chapel Church of Christ, and Creve Hall, and the Jerusalem Church of Christ, and everywhere in the world today, the church is under the same set of rules that tell us how to bring our worship to God. And this is what Paul needs, this is what the church of Corinth needs to hear from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Paul. And it's certainly something that Christians in 2022 need to hear today. And so decency and order involves how you perceive your own giftedness, recognizing that if God has given you a gift, if God has made you a great song leader, it's not for the sake of your glory. It's for the sake of using that to glorify God and to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ. If God has given you a good head to study the Word of God, and He leads you to be able to understand the Word and to be able to bring doctrinal lessons to the church, that is great. But understand, it's not about you. It is not about you. It is about the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It is about sharing that ability so that the members of the church are built up and strengthened in knowledge. And if you've been gifted by God in such a way that your gifts don't 
don't have a place in the worship service of the church, that doesn't mean we need to change the way we worship. It means you, again, need to humble yourself and say, well, my gifts are not the gifts for leading the worship assembly. But that doesn't make them second-class gifts. Because, brothers and sisters, the worship service is not everything in Christianity. It's a hub of it, but it ain't all there is. We come here to be built up. That's the, that's the whole message of 1 Corinthians 14. We come here to be edified, to be built up, so that we can leave to go out into the mission field and do the work of the kingdom of God. So we all need to check ourselves. We need to make sure that we don't employ the 21st century American mindset about what makes someone valuable. The ability to sing, the ability to do, you know, talented things that others can't do. America just idolizes and worships talent today. Man, if you can't sing well or dance well or, you know, can't, uh, uh, you know, run the football faster than other people or whatever it is that is the area of talent, you know, if you're not someone who's intellectually gifted so that you're skipping grades and all of that, all of that stuff is celebrated in worship. And brothers and sisters, this whole context says that if that's what you think matters in life, you are missing the point. You are missing the point. That's not what makes somebody a valuable human being. What makes somebody a valuable human being is the blood of Christ. That's it. Whatever talent you've got, if through the love of Christ you are not using that to become a slave of your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you have missed the mark. If you're using your abilities to glorify yourself, then you don't have any place in leading the worship of the church. And that's what Paul says in verse 38. Violators of the basic rules about decency and order in Christian worship are to be denied a leading role in the assembly of the saints. That's primarily our elders' responsibility. But I know that our elders do take that responsibility seriously. And so, my brothers, if you want to lead in this assembly, behave. Behave. It's as simple as that. And we, we this morning looked at this passage, and I want to bring our thoughts to a close by allowing us to think about this again. And there's just a couple of words of application. I just gleaned these statements from all of 1 Corinthians 14. Why are we here? Brothers, as you know, we're here to worship God. God doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need it. He seeks it but not for his good. God seeks our worship for our good. And the way that God has, has patterned Christian worship as revealed in the Bible, it's, it's not so that he can get his needs met. It, while we're in the process of obeying Scripture and worshiping God according to the Word, God has designed it so that it benefits us. It benefits you and me. God didn't create worship for himself. He created it for us. Just like God did not create man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, God created worship for our blessing. We worship God, and we're the ones who benefit from it. That's the unselfish nature of God. 
that is supposed to characterize everything we think and everything we do. So here it is. You know, the one who is worshiping appropriately speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation, builds up, built up, building up, built up, instruct, convicted, called to account, worship God. God is really among you. Do you see there these core ideas of 1 Corinthians 14? Brothers and sisters, that's what we're here to do. And so when we come together, I beg you, brothers and sisters, to align your will with God's will. Don't let worldly culture shape you. In other words, this is not a worship experience that is supposed to raise the hair on the back of your neck or make you leave here thinking you had a grand show. That is not what it's about. It's not the cult of personality where we follow this gifted, charismatic preacher and we come and hang on his every word. There's not a preacher in the world, brothers and sisters, who isn't wrong about something. And that includes me. Now, when I find out the next thing that that is, so help me God, I'll change. But there's nobody in this room who isn't wrong about something. So we need to make sure that we keep our focus on what really matters. Diligently participate in every act of worship. I said a couple of weeks ago, and I again confess, I'm pretty sure that I've never offered to God a perfect worship service in my whole life. And I don't know that any of us ever have or ever will this side of eternity. That's not the point. The point is making sure that when I do come into the assembly of the saints, my mind is on the will of God. And I do my best when the brothers lead our prayers to bow my head and listen to the words and pray them along with them. And when I come into the assembly and the brother gets up to lead singing, I, I, I sing both with my spirit and with my understanding. I think about the words that we're singing together and I sing them as if I'm singing to you, as if I'm teaching you even while I'm singing praise to God. And I do it with all my heart. And when the word is being preached, I need to be attentive. If you're a note taker, take notes. If you're an auditory learner, just listen. Let it sink in. Participate in the preaching by giving it your attention. When we partake of communion together, meditate on the body and the blood of the Lord. Discern Christ in those emblems, which... Chapter 11 tells us is absolutely vital to your spiritual health. Recognize that you're partaking of that body with the body and as a part of the body. And the unity of the body is a primary reminder that that communion is supposed to be teaching us week after week. Diligently participate in every act. And if this matters, if worship matters, show it by coming prepared. Think about it. On Saturday night, oh, it's the Lord's Day tomorrow. I get to assemble with God's people, to be in His presence in that special way. I'm going to go ahead and lay my clothes out. I'm going to go ahead and set my alarm. I'm going to go ahead and be ready. If I've got a leading part, I'm going to read that Scripture reading a dozen times. I'm going to make sure I know how to pronounce Melchizedek and so on. If I'm leading singing, I'm going to be ready. If I'm teaching or preaching, I'm going to be ready because this matters. And you've probably heard it before. 
If you're happy and you know it, tell your face. This is a joyous occasion. Brothers and sisters, when we come together, this is a joyous occasion. Hope these lessons are benefiting you. We've got at least one more Sunday talking about worship. It'll be two weeks from today. Uh, this evening, if you need to respond to the gospel invitation, God is ready to do whatever it is that you need. If you, need, if you realize that you're a sinner, you need to be saved by grace, confess the name of Christ. Based upon that, that confession and your desire to repent of your sins, we will baptize you in water and your sins will be washed away. You'll be united in the likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This evening, if you're a baptized believer that needs the prayers of this church, don't hesitate. Front pews are open. Come. So we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.